All right. Yeah. I'll try my best, man. I'll try my best to feed you all. Um, I have to apologize beforehand because I've been like sick the whole week. So if I'm not like 100% at my fastest or at my clearest, um, please let me know. I, I ate old, old cod. Like I had cod in the freezer and I was like, it's a good idea to eat this, right? I mean, I should not waste food. So I ate it, two pieces of old cod. And for like five days, I was out. Yesterday was like the first day I saw the light of day, like literally. I was in the, in the dungeon pits. I felt like I was in Jonah's like whale. And uh, yeah, it was really bad. But, but today I'm feeling a little bit better. So um, I love you all. I'm committed to this cohort. I'm not going to cancel it. I'm trying my best not to cancel it. So, um, but I, I, I want to be here because this is important stuff. This is the Old Testament we're going to talk about today. And we're going to build off of what Kling said last week. And um, yeah, so I apologize beforehand. Um, Kling covered a ton of stuff last week, but I think there are some things that we want to review beforehand, um, especially methodologically. I want to be extra practical for us today. I want us to not only think about how to interpret the text, and Clink went in depth really into interpreting passage like John 3, because he's a commentator in John 3, and I think we're going to try to take everything that we learned last week, and then go over some more practical Force like a few steps here that we're gonna we're gonna discuss today. We're gonna actually at at the second half of today's cohort divide you all into small groups, and you're gonna go through a passage in the Old Testament, and you're gonna take Clink's method, his his steps from last week, and some other things that I'm gonna discuss for you all today. And I hope you can take this Old Testament passage and read it in light of what Clink has said, and and um, read it in light of what I would say today. And the passage is from First Kings three, and you're gonna see that later today. Um, you guys know, of course, it's a very familiar passage. It's where Solomon has a dream, and he meets with God, and he asks God for wisdom. All right, so we're going to break in small groups today, and we're going to discuss that together, and then reconvene as a bigger group, and then discuss what you all find, okay? Hopefully, you would be more confident, therefore, in approaching the Old Testament, Old Testament texts by yourself, and reading it in the light of Christ, especially. All right? So, let me just pray for us, and then we'll review a little bit of Kling's steps, and then after that, we will discuss um, the Old Testament, what it is, what the New Testament says about the Old Testament, why we should be reading the Old Testament, um, especially because it seems to be a neglected part of Christian scripture. And then we'll discuss this beautiful diagram that discusses how to best interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your sustaining hand. We thank you, Lord God, for your providence that it is not surprising to you when sicknesses or when illnesses or any kind of calamity falls on us but rather you create light and you are in control over the dark and you lord god know when we wake and when we sleep so father help us today and lead us into understanding the riches of the old testament the riches of your providence the riches of your grace that chooses to be with such broken people as us and broken people like the Old Testament saints. Father, help us be fixated upon Christ who fulfills the Old Testament and help us read the Old Testament with a new vigor in mind. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, just a quick summary review here. Can anyone tell me the meaning and significance of the three 
kinds of contexts that Kling covered last week. Historical, literary, redemptive. Can someone summarize those three things for me? Should be pretty straightforward. Mike, looks like you want to answer. Right. Right. Yeah. So some background material, right? Yeah. Right. 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 Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking the Bible as a whole. Excellent. Fantastic. So historical, uh, maybe if you want to think about it as Clink's taxonomy last week, right? Historical is issues behind the text. Cultural, historical factors, data that might help you, background material. Literary context is what's kind of in the text. And redemptive context is also kind of in the text, the whole canon of scripture, right? Um, we, he got a little bit into readers too, what's in front of the text, but we didn't really get into it last week and we don't really need to get into it this week either, but that's fine. Um, okay, so what about content analysis? What did Clink say about content analysis last week? Should be pretty straightforward too. There's no trick questions here. Right, in content analysis, you take a passage of scripture and then you determine the portion that you're going to interpret, you're going to isolate that portion. Of course, this is assuming that you've done the contextual work, right? You've, you've looked at the history behind the text, you've looked at the literary context, the whole book, and also redemptively in a lot of the whole canon. Then you're going to isolate that portion of scripture that you're going to interpret, draw the main meaning out of it, determine the genre of scripture. What's genre? Remember the word genre? What does the word genre mean? A type of literature. What's an example of a genre? Poetry, wisdom, okay? Narrative, right? So when you read a poem like the book of Psalms, uh, or a psalm from the book of Psalms, you're not going to read it the same way as you would the narrative that you're going to read today in First Kings, right? And in the same way, when you read a letter of Paul, you're not going to read it the same way as you would a narrative or a gospel. So you've got to be attuned to the kind of literature that you're working with, right? Um... And then you try to draw the textual big idea. What is the main message that this text is communicating to you today? So last week we talked about uh, the, the, the prodigal son, for example. If you were to summarize uh, the, the prodigal son, the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son, what would be the main idea? Maybe it would be something like, what? You shouldn't be a prideful person. When you, when you, when you see someone coming back to faith in the Lord, repenting into God, you should be rejoicing with them. Yeah, what's up? Oh, somebody needs to move their cars. 
B751 Lex series, that's alias, okay. HRV B1587. All right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, there's a, so check out the story there. Sorry. Some parking stuff downstairs. All right. So you might summarize that parable in that way. And then there's the third step, which is contextualization or a theological reading, which is really bridging the main sense of that text in its literary canonical context to saying that what is, what is, what is that text saying about God and humanity that is universally applicable? What is, that say, what is that text saying about the God that is related to you, humanity as universally applied, which means that you're a human too, it's speaking to you, in other words, and the nature of redemption that is always the same as well. So how do you theologically read the passage of scripture, not merely as, well, that's a nice story, and that's a nice little main point for that audience back then, but rather, what does this always say about the nature of God that is always true, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Nature of humanity, which is always the same yesterday, today, well, not exactly the same as God, but we have a universal humanity. Humans struggle with the same sins 2,000 years ago as they did today. They still lie, they still fornicate, they still are greedy, right? And what is the nature of redemption? God always saves by grace, whether he's saved by grace in the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. So you have to draw the hard work of contextualization and not seeing that the texts don't merely refer to an ancient audience that has nothing to do with you, but rather to an audience that is, in fact, includes you. So let's think more specifically about the Old Testament, right? This is a neglected portion of Scripture. If, you're, you, know, if you bring a physical Bible like I have here today, and I admit this about myself, um, most of your Bible, just in terms of quantity, right, is actually the Old Testament. Like a huge portion of your Bible, 80% of your Bible is the Old Testament. 700 to 800 pages, then you get 200 pages or 250 pages worth of the New Testament. And yet in your devotions, how often do you go to the Old Testament? Let's just show of hands. How often? Like, like none. You guys are like shaking your heads. You're not even like trying to admit. Sometimes I go to the Psalms. You're not even trying to like cover it up anymore. You're like, nah, I don't go there. I just don't go there. No, you go, you go to the Gospels. And even in the Gospels, a lot of you are like, why is he quoting the Old Testament so much? You realize that Jesus, when he was being tempted by the devil, what, is he, what does he quote? Deuteronomy, my goodness, all right? When you feel tempted at night, what do you quote? Most of us quote hymns. I, I quote hymns. I don't even quote the Bible sometimes. But the, you see, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. So, so for some reason, right, there's a disconnect between the devotional life of Jesus and our devotional life. I'm not saying the New Testament is irrelevant or even less, right? It's great for you to use the, Old, the New Testament. But Jesus himself lived through all the temptations that he lived through by using the Old Testament primarily, okay? And, and Paul, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, for example, when he says that all scripture is God-breathed and, and profitable for you to be equipped for all good works, what scriptures do you think he was thinking about there? Old Testament, Right? So the New Testament authors, when they were talking about these things, weren't having primarily in mind the Gospels or, or, or their own letters, even though they do include that in some other portions. But they have primarily in mind the Old Testament. They argue that the Old Testament is sufficient for you to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That 
if you want to grow as a Christian, you need to take the Old Testament seriously. And so there's a big gap in our spirituality, I think, if we don't take the Old Testament seriously and if we don't use it. So let's just take a look at what the New Testament says about the Old Testament really quickly here. Look at Luke 22, 44 to 45. This is probably familiar to a lot of you. So Jesus, having resurrected, met his disciples, and they, they, they were confused of what was happening. And look at Jesus' rebuke to them. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So in other words, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is the whole of the Old Testament. Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets include First and Second Kings, all the narratives, and all those uh, the, the minor and major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. And in the Psalms, the main point of all of the books of the Old Testament in Jesus' interpretation is Jesus himself. All right? Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in, the name, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So not only is the Old Testament proclaiming loudly the coming of Jesus Christ and who he is as a person, but also the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins that Christ brings forth. Look at what Galatians 3 verse 8 says. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Notice there that the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham, right? I don't know, have you guys heard about the news of Andy Stanley this past week? No, okay. Have you guys maybe heard the rhetoric or you guys have been maybe tempted to think this way before? The Old Testament God seems to be more frightening, more of a God of wrath than the God of the New Testament. There's so much war, violence, and God is so uh, impatient in the Old Testament. seems to be a completely different message. And then the New Testament, God says, you know what? We need a different plan altogether. You heard that before? I'm sure you have. See, this is not what Paul regarded the Old Testament to be. Paul didn't say that the New Testament was a completely different plan. Paul didn't say that the New Testament reversed everything the Old Testament did. Rather, the New Testament is simply the same gospel that was announced to Abraham. Abraham, all the way in Genesis 12, 15, and onwards, right? All nations will be blessed through you. So in other words, the New Testament merely advances organically the same message, the same gospel that is announced to Abraham. It says more, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Look at what it says there. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Notice, notice the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of the grace of God. It's been one message of grace that was to come to you. Search intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Okay, we don't have time to get into this, but just notice a few things here. The Spirit of Christ in them. Okay, that's an interesting kind of language, and in fact, a title of the Spirit of Christ, because notice Christ hasn't come in the time of the Old Testament. There was not yet a Christ at the time of the Old Testament. But at the same time, uh, Peter is saying there, 
that Christ's Spirit indwelled the Old Testament prophets. So the same Spirit that is in the, in the New Testament church and the same Spirit that was with Christ and in Christ was filling the prophets to understand the mysteries of God, to predict the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. So there's a supernatural work of God that proclaims and applies the same message of the grace of Jesus Christ, in fact, the same Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament covenant. And it was revealed to them, notice this, that they were serving not themselves, but you. So in other words, intrinsic to the character of the Old Testament was a, a, a universal scope. What I mean by that is, the Old Testament prophets and writings were never written just for them. A lot of people might even be tempted that the Old Testament was just written for the Jews. They were not written for us, they were written for Israel, not for the church. But notice there that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. So in other words, when Isaiah was proclaiming the return of Israel from exile, or when Abraham was promised by God that he was to be a blessing for all nations, or when uh, Jonah was proclaiming to Nineveh a message of repentance. Okay, these are a lot of connections that I'm making here, but, but, or David, right? Proclaiming the covenant with the Lord in 2 Samuel 7. These are not isolated events of mere historical interest to Israel. This is not just like, you know, you're reading, uh, there's a biography of Mao there at the back if you want to read about Chairman Mao Zedong, right? This is not merely about, you know, if you read the biography of Mao, you might think to yourself, this might have some economic interest for Indonesia or something, or of historical value to me, or for me to show off to my friends, I know a little bit about Mao. But you might not say to yourself that this is completely relevant for you. You're a different citizen. Mao's not relevant for you, right? You're not thinking about him. It doesn't affect your life. But this is not what the Old Testament is. You can't say that about the Old Testament. You can't say that the Old Testament it's merely about a foreign nation's leaders or a foreign nation's history. Somehow it concerns your history. The prophets were writing to you and for you. When they spoke of the things that now have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And notice it says there that these things that were told to you were the same things that were told to them. So if there's Peter, Galatians, they spoke of what I would call the organic connectedness of Old and New Testament. The organic connectedness of Old and New Testament. And in fact, the same gospel proclaimed between the two covenants of God. And even angels long to look into these things. And you might think, you know, if you guys have been coming to CCC, uh, listening to our series on Jacob, for example, or heard our, our sermons on the Psalms or Jonah or Ruth, you might think this is a no-brainer. But this is actually pretty controversial. Right? I just want us to appreciate the controversialness of this, just, just in terms of not only academically, but also for the church. In the church, you've, you've heard that pitting of the Old Testament against the New. But academically, it is completely uh, uh, absurd. Right? So every November, there's an academic conference that I would normally go to in America. It's called the Society of Biblical Literature. And in this academic conference, you have Biblical scholars from all kinds of backgrounds, Jewish, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, secular, you know, these are a lot of the people that you would see in these conferences are the people that you would see in the History Channel saying that, you know, 
Jesus never really resurrected or whatever. But um, these are the, the kind of people that come to these conferences, and they would have not panels on the Old Testament. Why wouldn't they call it a panel of the Old Testament? But instead they call it a panel of Jewish scripture or the Hebrew Bible. Why couldn't they call it the Old Testament? It implies a New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament. If there's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament, right? In other words, you're imposing a Christian interpretation of the Old Testament when you call it an Old Testament. Did you notice that? You notice that you're always offending Jews. When you're calling the Old Testament, the Old Testament. And academics hate to be offensive. They're all so fine and with their... Anyway, right? It's just all fine and good. They just don't want to offend anyone. Hebrew Bible, Jewish scriptures, right? So how would you read, for example, um, the Genesis account of Abraham? How, how would you read it as a Christian? Can you think of places in the New Testament that, that talks about Abraham? The book of Hebrews, sure. Hebrews 11, that's good. Faithfulness, Hebrews 11. The faithfulness of Abraham is a great example for you. But not only that, let's think about Paul as well. Romans 4, right? Abraham uh, put his faith in God and was counted to him as righteous because God justifies the ungodly. All right, so you might come to a session and you, like me, are, you're, you're anxious. You're, you're just seeing the Old and New Testament as one organic whole. And then you raise up your hand and then you say to the panelist, well, Abraham wasn't justified by works of the law, but rather by faith. Well, look at Romans 4. You know what they would say? Irrelevant. Totally irrelevant. Paul, ex you notice that Paul existed like 4,000 years after Abraham. Thousands of years after Abraham ever existed, right? At least, right? Thousands, right? You know, that's, that's kind of like saying, I just, I just want us to notice the, the hugely supernatural assumptions you're making when you're reading the Old Testament and a lot of the New. It's hugely supernatural and hugely Christian, hugely theological in your assumptions, okay? So if I, um, if I open to you, uh, let's say, uh, let's, let's not even take too ancient of a text, okay? Um, how many of you guys here, oh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, taking place in like Victorian England, okay? And then I tell you that um, right now, there's a student in Indonesia writing an essay on Mary Shelley. And then instead of going to Victorian England and going to the Mary Shelley archives, I tell you that a particular student's essay on Mary Shelley should outweigh and in fact, be your interpretive authority for reading Mary Shelley. So here, here's Paul, not living from the same city that Abraham came from. Abraham came from a pagan city in the ancient Near East. Paul grew up in the Greco-Roman world, right? Thousands of years removed, right? Uh, Jew as he may be, that might be the only conceptual linkage, right? But, but to read the Abrahamic story in light of Paul is just absolutely absurd, okay? Um, or, or think about, think about the, the connectedness of the whole. What about, what about if I said to you this, okay? The best way to read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is for you to read Plato's Republic. Because in the mind of Plato's Republic, or in the text of Plato's Republic, there's echoes of Frankenstein. What would you say? You're crazy, all right? Plato was a Greek. 
Mary Shelley was like a 19-year-old English girl. <laughs> Nothing to do with one another, okay? Absolutely absurd. So when you read the Old Testament, you're saying to yourself, okay, this is about a Jew who would be born in, Greco-Roman, in a Greco-Roman society and not about Israel the nation and not about Israel the people. Academic conference, they just go, they just blow up. It's crazy. And in fact, for you to argue these kind of things, they have a separate section for you. You know what it's called? The panel of like Christian interpretation or uh, the panel of uh, Christian theology. They wouldn't exactly call it historical, contextual, grammatical analysis. So I want you to notice you're making theological judgments. So you so, if you're taking these texts at face value and you're reading the Bible the way Jesus is telling you to read the Bible, you're actually making and assuming claims that go against the grain of how normal ways of interpreting goes. These are theological judgments that you're making. Just let me pause there. Any questions about that? No questions. Everyone's like, let's just go ahead and read the Bible theologically. Yeah? What do you mean by equally as ridiculous? So what, what is, so, but because this is not ridiculous in our understanding. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of really great critiques out there already being done against that kind of historical, or I would say historicist mindset. Um, the kind of critiques would, would show that um, despite your claims of objectivity, of really taking the text historically, none of you agree with one another. Um, there is no settled meaning of interpretation. You, would, you said to yourself that, oh, you're interpreting the Bible by faith, and that's why you Protestants never agree with anything. Well, look at the academic... We're, you're not just disagreeing among like societies. You're disagreeing among individuals. Every individual has a different reading, and so it's just it's not fruitful. And not only that, um, you're imposing a very modern Western individualistic historicist account of interpretation onto the text. Do we really believe that Jewish um, Yahweh believers read their scriptures in that way? You see, when when they read the scriptures devotionally when the, the Jewish people were in exile under Assyria, or, or, sorry, Babylon, right? And they read the accounts of Moses, for example. And they were reading it and saying that God took the Israelites out of Egypt, and in the same way, God can take the Israelites out of Babylon and move us back to the Promised Land. That's a theological reading, right? That's not a historicist account. So you're, you're actually, what they're, I think, blind to is um, they... they if, if they say that we are biased and we're reading the Old Testament, we're imposing a Christian interpretation, they're actually imposing a historicist, um, Western Enlightenment-driven, and in fact, a hermeneutic, a reading of Scripture that didn't exist before the 18th century. So they are also imposing something onto the text. We have to reveal and expose that. Good question. <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah. Exactly. So, so in fact, the Old Testament authors themselves believed in the divine authorship of Scripture. They didn't believe that they were just saying things and making stuff up or writing a historical account for history's sake, right? Instead, they believed that they were carried by God, obligated by God. So, so in other words, God is always the divine author, and then you have these multiple human authors. And in fact, because God is the unified author behind these little human authors, right? My drawings are still better than Clink, so you can't complain. Um, you have a kind of unity and diversity motif, right? So the personalities of the human authors are not eroded or extinguished by the authorship of God, but rather undergirding the different personalities, different manners of writing, different historical contexts, you have the divine authorship of Scripture that guarantees an organically unified meaning. Does that make sense? So... Um, yeah, in fact, the old, so, the, so you're not taking the Jewish scriptures on its own terms because the Jewish scriptures, on its own terms, proclaims itself to be divine scripture. Good. All right. Mike. Sure. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, you would, there is something new in the New Testament, for sure. That's why it's called, it's called the New Testament. So there is something climactically fulfilled. That's why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. And we do read certain instructions in the Old Testament. And we say that's been fulfilled in Christ, right? So we want to say that there's something about the New Testament that is authoritatively fulfilling the, the Old Testament. Um, but at the same time, the newness of the new is outstripped of its newness, if I could call it that way, without the Old Testament. So I don't know if this is a helpful analogy for you. I've used it before in like a class, but let's just see if it's helpful. If it's not, how many of you guys read Harry Potter? I haven't read Harry Potter, so good. You guys, <laughs> you guys have read Harry Potter. Uh, I just watched the movies, okay? So I hope this doesn't spoil. How many of you guys have seen the movies of Harry Potter? I don't want to spoil too many things. I keep spoiling these things. It's old. It's okay. So you guys know the story of Snape, Professor Snape, right? Uh, all right. Is he a bad guy or a good guy? Good guy, because you guys have seen like the sixth and seventh movie, right? He's a good guy. And but but notice you were kind of concerned about this guy for like five books or five movies. I don't know how many movies there are. This is kind of sh he's always wearing black. He's in Slytherin, so he's slithering, right? It's so you know, you're you're always kind of concerned, like what is this guy's motives? This guy's always behind Dumbledore's back or whatever. You're you're never really sure. He's mixing potions in the class. It's weird, right? So he looks, you know, so, so he's suspicious for a time. And then you get to the final reveal. Turns out he's been a good guy all along. He loves Harry Potter's mom, right? And, and was taking care of Harry behind the scenes the whole time. And then now you go back and reread the old books. 
And you're like, oh, dang. So that's what's going on, right? So in, in a sense, you want to let the old book speak for itself. Let the story carry you through itself. But at the same time, once that reveal has taken place, you can't read the old books the same way again, could you? So, so there's a newness of the reveal, and even, even in fact, sometimes even a surprising element to it. But because of the reveal, you read the Old Testament in a completely new light. You see what I mean? Now you see, oh, that's why Adam and Eve were covered up after they ate of the tree. Right? So an animal was sacrificed for them, and they were covered by someone else's or something else's clothes. Oh, okay. So there was a death that happened. Someone had to die, right? Oh, okay. Um, Abraham was interceding for, uh, for, for, for Lot's city, right? And Abraham was saying, Lord, what if the, what if the city had 10 righteous people? Would you, would you relent from the judgment of the city? Would you not destroy the city if there were 10 righteous people there? And God said, yes. And in fact, Ab- you see, when you're reading that story and you're reading in light of Christ, you're always like, there's something inside of you. Abraham, what if, what if you said, what if there was only one righteous person? Could one righteous person and the merit of one person cover the sins of the rest of the city? Was, was the answer to that? Yes, right? And then you're suddenly, you're suddenly reading the Old Testament, yeah, right? Yes, very good, right? And then you, so, so all of these Old Testament stories, right? And then, and then God comes to Abraham in a dream, and then God cuts all these animals into two. And then God, instead of letting Abraham walk through the animals in that promise of covenant, God puts Abraham to sleep, and God walks through it himself, saying that if someone breaks this covenant, I will take on the death for them. And then you're reading you know, Jesus was crucified. So you're reading these things anew, right? But maybe before the, the New Testament era, right? You're reading these things, and you're not exactly sure was yet being communicated, okay? Does that make sense? Does it, does it help, Mike? So there's a, there's a narratival perspective to it. And at, at the same time, so the New Testament does interpret the Old Testament for you. Um, but you don't want to miss out on the riches of how God has been working throughout history in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a historical ornament. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, think, I think you want to say um, all, but then remember Clink's determinate meaning, right? There's, 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 there's a lot of meaning in the text that you can draw from. So, for example, in the Solomon's, actually, let's not spoil it. So, for example, in the Abrahamic story, you can say that one of the meanings you can draw from that text was... Um, uh, you shouldn't lie to people or you shouldn't be afraid of people. Let's just say that's just one of the meanings. And can you draw that to Christ? Yes, but that's not as central to how it points to Christ than the fact that um, uh, Abraham's son, uh, Isaac, was almost sacrificed to God, but God replaced a, a ram for him. You see, substituted a ram for his son. You see what I mean? So there's, there's more, I think, central pointers to Christ than, than peripherals. So I think the whole of the Old Testament points to Christ, I think every part of it, but others, other parts more penetratingly so than others, maybe you could put it that way. Yeah. A lot of that was reviewed too from last week, right? So I hope things are getting clearer to you in your head. 
Okay, last text, Romans 15, 4. For everything that was written in the past was written. This is the next page, yeah, sorry. For everything that was written in the past, in other words, the Old Testament, was written to teach us, Roman Christians, right? So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So everything written in the Old Testament was for you. Don't miss out. And so that you might have hope. Interesting that it's hope that he's talking about here, right? So by looking at how God has worked himself out in the past, how God redeems, how God restores, how God is faithful, how God is providentially renewing all things, right? We might have hope. So let me now draw Edmund Clowney's paradigm or diagram out here for you. And this is super helpful as a kind of step-by-step approach, not only to um, avoid errors, but also to read the Old Testament really well. Have you guys heard of Edmund Clowney, by the way? Edmund Clowney was Tim Keller's teacher. So it, so you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I've got to pay attention now. All right. Edmund Clowney was a president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where Tim Keller graduated from, of course. Um, for, I think, how many years? A couple of decades. And then he moved to California, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s. But anyway, so Ed Clowney um, drew out this paradigm. And it's a bit modified here, but it's super helpful because he's trying to draw a paradigm that helps preachers and readers of the Old Testament connect the dots and point them to Christ. Okay? So you take an Old Testament text here. Let's just say, uh, for argument's sake, uh, at the Adam and Eve story, okay? So you take an Old Testament text, the Adam and Eve story, and after they had sinned, Genesis 3, right? God provided a ram there or something like that. <clears throat> and then you interpret it in light of its historical context or in terms of the Old Testament context itself in the book of Genesis and... Um, the ancient Near East, <clears throat> and then you go to what they call T1, or Old Testament Truth 1. In other words, you want to read the Old Testament on its own terms, get, get the meaning. So don't, in other words, don't rush to Christ. You, you know that Christ is there, but don't rush to him immediately. Get to the Old Testament meaning first in T1. And then, after you get the Old Testament meaning in T1, so let's say in the Adam and Eve story, let's just say, um, uh, what's the Old Testament uh, meaning there? Okay, well, let's draw. For the sake of this purposes, I'm not going to go very deep, okay? I'm just going to lay out the diagram out for you. Let's just say, obey God. Obey, obey Yahweh. Don't take good and knowledge for yourself. Rely on him for good and evil, okay? Rely on him for the knowledge of good and evil, okay? So that's the Old Testament truth one. And then you go for the history of special revelation, or the history of redemption. And then you get to TN, which is the fulfillment in Christ. Okay? So you get to the Old Testament text, you seek out the meaning of the Old Testament in its own terms, and you try to trace out the history of redemption and see how that fulfills in Christ. And then, and only then, after you get to Christ, you get to working out contextualization or the significance, as Ed Clowney would call it. And then you get to application. (coughs) 
So that's at least a three-step approach. Take an Old Testament text, first step, contextual analysis, right? Truth in the Old Testament on its own terms, and then history of redemption, show how that truth, um, don't disobey God, or, uh, you know, rely on God for the knowledge of good and evil, points to Christ, right? How Christ is the embodiment of the knowledge of good and evil, Christ is the truly obedient Adam, whatever it is. And then from that, apply the significance to you, okay? So um, let me just get the rest of the diagram out before we, we take a look at some more examples, okay? Um, just, just notice, just in terms of this broad square here that I've just drawn out for you, how frustrated I might get when people tell me there's not enough application. All right, you gotta give me more application more immediately, okay? Every time people tell me that, I hear in my head Ed Clowney telling me, stop, get, get application out only at the very end, and in fact, pepper it out throughout, but make sure that people get the meaning first, and then draw it out to Christ first, and then draw it to application first. Why? Because if all you do is you take an Old Testament text, you get to the truth of the Old Testament text, you, you explain the meaning of the Old Testament text on its own terms, and then you rush from there to application, and then you skip Christ, you go to what you ought to do immediately, that ends up with moralism. That ends up with moralism, because you got Old Testament texts, and the Old Testament is really about you, how you could improve your life, right? How Adam and Eve is an example for you. Adam and Eve sets up this principle, this command, and it's not about its fulfillment in Christ primarily. In fact, you skip that, that, that step altogether, you end up with mere applications, and then it, you end up with a message of moralism. And if you read the Bible that way, you're going to be exhausted when you read the Bible that way. You're not beholding the beauty of the, of the gospel, which is actually what transforms you. And at the same time, if you read the Old Testament text and you don't get to the meaning of its historical situatedness, its literary context, its redemptive context in that book itself, you jump from the Old Testament text and straight away, you go to Christ, you get the error of allegory. There are good, there are good allegories and bad allegories, but for, for, for our purposes, this is just the bad ones, okay? So, for example, um, Rahab, uh, well, let's, 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 let's go there, actually. So, so for example, uh, actually, let's, let's, let's use that. Joshua 2, okay? Rahab, the prostitute, she hangs out a scarlet, uh, or well, let's not even go there. That's that's too that's too complicated. Let's just let's, Rahab the prostitute is hiding these uh, Jewish spies, right, uh, against the the, um, the city of Jericho, and so you're not trying to get that in light of the historical context that the Israelites have been out of Egypt, the Israelites are now trying to go into the Promised Land, but instead you're saying immediately, see. Um, Rahab is really Jesus. And then you just say, Rahab is really Jesus. Why? Uh, because Jesus hides us. But, but wait, if you slow down, see, you, that strikes us as kind of benign. That strikes us of, as like, that's too quick. That's not profound. That's just an allegory, right? And then Rahab's scarlet, you know, uh, strand of Jericho's wall that's really like the blood of Jesus, because it's red, right? You're missing probably the point, you see what I mean? Um, 
because the the point of the the passage is not simply the, the details of redness and, and Christ. You, you got you got to just be patient and look at it in terms of the historical context, and perhaps you could see that there's a deeper significance there that points to Christ. You see what I mean? So so be patient about it. Does that make sense? Or you know when you see a rock in any passage and then you immediately think Christ is the rock of ages, so Christ is this rock. That might be good in some context. So when Moses strikes the rock, you know, Paul actually talks about the rock being Christ. But David's stones are probably not Christ's rocks. Uh, you know, that's, that's way too quick of a reading to say that the stones of David are really Christ's. You know, there are five stones, so Christ has five offices or something. I don't know. You're, not, you're, not, you're reading the Bible in light of Christ, but you're not, you're not attuned to the context of it. Does that make sense? So... You don't want to go into moralism too quickly, and you don't want to go jump into allegory too quickly. And this is, might be hazy for you, but that's okay. Um, we'll, hopefully, it will become clearer as we go through. And this here is allegorical moralism. We don't have to get into that, but it's good for us to note that. Which is simply that you're not merely reading the Bible a little bit too spiritually, but you're also reading it very moralistically. Um, I think a good example of allegorical moralism is people joke about this, but some people take it seriously. People say, just open the Bible to a random spot and that's God speaking to you. Right? That's allegorical moralism. Because um, you're, you're reading it ultra-spiritually and you're reading it in light of, not in light of Christ, right? Because you're not, you're not opening the Bible randomly and then saying, how does this point me to Christ? That's mere allegory. But rather, you're, you're opening the Bible at a random space, and you're saying, God, tell me what to do, right? That's allegorical moralism. Um, don't read the Bible that way. That's a bad hermeneutic, right? That's kind of reading the Bible like a fortune cookie machine. So be patient. Um, Old Testament text, get the Old Testament truth out, out of context. Show how that is fulfilled in Christ. And then out of that significance, you go to the application, Okay. So maybe this is helpful for you, but this was helpful for me as I understood this, and I was listening to a bunch of Keller sermons as I've been recently. Man, that's a bad sponge. So Keller, if you li- how many of you guys listen to Tim Keller's sermons? Quite a few of you, okay? And then um, you guys have been coming to CCC quite a little bit, so we are very much influenced by this sort of approach. So... Um, if you listen to Keller's sermons, you really hear um, one structure. It's a very simple three-step structure. Okay, Here, Here's Keller's approach. Uh, let's take an Old Testament example again. So let's just say he takes an Old Testament text, and um, this time it's maybe David and Bathsheba. Okay, David and Bathsheba, Old Testament text, Old Testament meaning, T1, let's just say, um, don't steal someone else's wife, okay? In other words, Keller makes that text about what you should do. That's normally his first point. His first point is normally the scariest point because he's telling you in light of the Old Testament text, here's why adultery is bad, here's why the Bible is telling you you shouldn't do it, Here's why it's not natural. Here's why it's your, in your best interest not to steal someone else's wife. 
And in fact, it is unnatural for society to think otherwise. So what you should do is don't do that, okay? And in fact, just keep faithfulness with your own wife. And then he would go to the fulfillment in Christ, but along the way, before he gets to the fulfillment in Christ, right? So you, you go to Christ here. He would say something along the lines of point number two, which is something like, you can't do it. In other words, here's why you can't do it. And then he'll point you to New Testament examples of, in fact, lusting at someone is already the same as committing adultery. Like if you were honest with yourself, how many times have you guys have been envious of someone else's, uh, uh, sorry, envious of, of a husband, of that wife, because you were lusting over her? You know, these are the kind of things that he would do. So first step, he would communicate what you ought to do. Second step, in a lot of the text, in other words, what you ought to do. Second step, he would communicate why you can't do it in a lot of the New Testament. And third step, he would say, what would it be? How Christ did it, right? How Christ was the fulfillment. And in fact, how he drives the passage home is normally for you to rest in what Christ had done. The significance for you is you can go back to what you should do only if you realize you can't do it because Christ had done it for you. That's all his, his approach. And I think that approach matches and maps out with Ed Clowney's diagram here. Okay, does that make sense? A any questions about that? I know that was a bit quick, but I think it's a very practical step-by-step -step approach. So it's nice when the New Testament does this for you, okay? So look at here one example I'm teasing out a little bit more in Hebrews chapter 9. Let's apply this paradigm to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which is interestingly what the book of Hebrews does for you. So remember in the Old Testament, the Israelites had to offer up sacrifices to Yahweh of goats and bulls, and the blood of them are sprinkled um, so that they might be clean, right? Cleanse of their sin, sanctifies them. So there's an Old Testament sense in which every day priests had to do this. They had to offer sacrifices unto God. So that's the Old Testament meaning, right? Um, that was a real ceremonial sacrificial system that the Israelites had to go through in that step of redemptive history. But notice what Hebrews 9 says. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And not only that, look at Hebrews 10, 1 to 4 and 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
So the sacrifices of bulls and goats could not, even though they were offered yearly to God, could not ultimately sanctify your sins. How could the blood of bulls and goats actually sanctify you? They pointed to the reality that you needed blood to sanctify you, but it is not the blood of bulls and goats that would sanctify you. Rather, it is the blood of Christ. And that's why we have no more need for sacrifices. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient once for all. It's not to be repeated. Right? So, how might you... So, you're talking about the Old Testament system. You're going across the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, for example. And take a look at the sacrificial system. You might even say that the sacrificial system uh, leads to... uh, One bad reading might be a kind of penance. Every time you sin, you have to make... I'll use a red marker. Every time you sin, you have to make penance unto God. Okay? So you're reading your Bible, and then you're reading about the sacrificial system, and then it says there, oh, okay, they used to sacrifice animals every time they sinned, so every time I sin, I have to make some kind of sacrifice for God. So I've sinned today, i got to call up my non-Christian friend and tell him the gospel or something. Or I've sinned today, and i got to make a confession to my priest or something, right? You see, what you've done there is you said, okay, it's a sacrificial system, leads to penance, and you've moved straight from there onto application. You notice that? That's a moralistic reading, right? Because the sacrificial system, as much as it was, in a sense, a kind of penance in the Old Covenant, right? Because every time they sinned, annually, they needed to give these animals unto God, right? It was a kind of penance there. But if you don't, go to Christ, that kind of penance talk ends up your application. And you're reading the Old Testament and you're suddenly coming with a bad conscience because you're realizing, I sinned this much this week and I haven't made enough penances to cover up my sins for this week. So you're on this repeated, you know, moralistic wheel and you have to keep justifying yourself. But instead, you let the Bible interpret the Bible for you. The penitential system was already fulfilled by Christ, right? He was your true penance. He fulfilled everything for you. His blood was sufficient. There is no more priests to stand up every year. I love how the book of Hebrews opened up, for example, by saying that Christ was seated after having made sacrifice for sins. Because Hebrews 10 says, the priests stand repeatedly every year. You notice that? So priests in the Old Covenant, in the book of Hebrews, are always described as standing every year. They're they're standing priests. In other words, their work was never complete. They were on the hamster wheel. They were always standing. But Christ was seated after having made purification for sins. In other words, Christ's work was so completed that he sat down like it's done. (laughs) He just sat down. God rested on the seventh day after he created. Christ sat down after he redeemed, right? In contrast to the priests of the old covenant who made penance every year for you and couldn't do it. Right? They had to stand up continually every year. So notice if you get to the Old Testament meaning, don't jump straight to application. You go to Christ and you show, see, that was the significance of it. Look, it's done. Okay, You're burned out. This is one application that I might draw from that. Okay, You're burned out every week because you're going to Bible study not to edify yourself, but rather to justify yourself. Stop going to Bible study for that reason. You're going for the wrong reasons, right? You're burned out 
because you're trying to justify yourself by building up the corporate ladder because you think that your significance is based on this work that you do for your company. No, stop it. Christ has done all your worth for you. Stop paying penance by how much you perform at your work, right? That might be the significance, but you can't get there because if you, if you just draw from penance to application, you might think to yourself, all right, look, again, I lied to my friend. I have to, I have to prove myself today by going to community group and I've got to be extra vulnerable this week, right? Stop, you're, you're going for the wrong reasons, okay? That's a moralistic reading. You're sacrificing or you're thinking that going to community group is another sacrifice you're offering up to God to cleanse your conscience. Stop it. Your conscience should be cleansed already because Christ is your Savior. Go to community group to be edified. Go to community group simply to behold and to grow. Don't go because you're trying to clean yourself. Does that make sense? Is this, is this clear? Sort of? Kind of? Despite me being poisoned by cod for the last five days? Alright? How are you guys doing? Very good. Let me just read um, a passage from the Westminster Confession of Faith um, that summarizes everything that I just told you really, really neatly. Um, and then we'll break up into small groups. Is that okay with you guys? And we're going to go through First Kings. I won't do what Clink did last week with, first, with John 3, by the way. He, wrote, he spent nine years on the Gospel of John. I didn't spend nine years in the First Kings. So I'm not going to like blow our minds with everything that we need to know with First Kings, okay? There's no Nicodemus moment here that I think would, would, would blow us up because I didn't write a commentary on First Kings. But I think it's worth going through First Kings and then thinking through these things together in light of what we had just learned. But let me read Westminster Confession 7.5 here, which um, communicates to us everything that I just said in a summarized fashion. Look at what it says here. This covenant, or the New Testament covenant of grace, was differently administered in the time of the law. So notice, the new covenant of grace, right, was not established um, newly or differently after the law, but rather administered. It's the same covenant of grace in the Old Testament, in the time of the law, and in the time of the gospel. So notice, even the, the Old Testament was in the time of the gospel, under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb or the Passover Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious. So there's one gospel, one covenant, but applied in two different ways. In the old law, it was administered by prophecy, sacrifices, circumcision, paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. And they all foresignified Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious. In other words, it was good enough for that time, and they all pointed to Christ. But it's still the same gospel. It was not a different gospel. Through the operation of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit takes the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection, and through the sacrifices and the circumcision and the prophecies, applied those benefits of Christ that were to come thousands of years later through these means to the old covenant people. So the Spirit works supernaturally, taking and moving through time and applying those benefits backwards to them. So when Abraham trusted God, Abraham trusted God and was 
accredit, accredited um, righteous by God only because Christ died for Abraham. So it wasn't as if Abraham was saved by any other way. Abraham was always saved by Christ. And it is to instruct and build up the elect in faith and in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. And it's called the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Questions before we break into group? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely two different administrations of the same covenant. Does that make sense? Uh, sorry, in the time of the law? Yeah, that's, that's talking about the Old Testament, yeah. Yeah, so, so in the time of the law and the time of the gospel under the law, those are, those are the same thing uh, being repeated in two different ways. So he's trying to emphasize for you and by, re- by repetition that the gospel was already there under the law, all right? Okay, cool. Let's break up into groups. You guys ready for this? Yeah, Jackie? Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Please, please. Right. Yeah, uh, I think I think you could still say the Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith. Um, it's just that it wasn't revealed to them that the promises that they were placing their faith on, or the sacrifices that they were placing their faith on, were pointing to something greater, which is Christ. So Abraham, by faith, believed in the promises of God to make him a blessing to all nations, right? Um, that's true. That's how he was saved, by grace through faith. He was called out of a pagan nation by grace alone. And in fact, when Exodus, the law, came to the people of uh, um, Israel in Mount Sinai, that was given to them by grace after they had been redeemed. God didn't give the law to Moses before they had been redeemed. God gave the law after they had been redeemed from Egypt. Um, and they trusted in the promises of God to walk with him, right? And so it would say still by grace through faith and the promises of God. In the same way, we're saved by grace through faith in the promises of God, which are all yes and amen in Christ. So we've been promised by God that if you trust in Christ, you will be saved from your sins. And in the same way, Abraham was saved by God. If you trust in me, you will be saved. You can just say it that way. And I think um, you, can, you can talk about how, for example, baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are quote-unquote works that are commanded to us, but they're a means of grace. And in the same way, um, the sacrificial system was a means of grace. That's how they were receiving the grace of God so they might commune with him. And in the same way, we go to church not because it's a mere work, right? We take the Lord's Supper not because it's a mere work, but that's how we are receiving the grace of God. It's a means, it's an instrument of grace. And you see it that way. It's no longer a burden for you. You joyfully take the Lord's Supper. You joyfully go to church. Nobody needs to wake you up to go to church. It's a highlight of your week, all right? Cool. Mike. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
I, I think that's why God would rebuke them when he says, for example, your sacrifices are before me, but your hearts are far from me. And in the same way, you know, you're, you're taking the Lord's Supper, but your hearts are far from me, right? You're going to church, but your hearts are far from me. So in the same way that we, who are Christians, see the Lord's Supper as hugely beneficial, and you want to go to church, and you want to hear the preaching of the word, not because it's a burden, but because that's how you're fed. In the same way, the old covenant people were supposed to look at the sacrifices, go before the priest, go, in, go, go to the temple as a means of communion. They, they should be happily doing that if they know the redemption that God has brought them. Yeah, but the administration is different. Yeah. Yeah. But I sometimes I and I think a lot of Christians I think don't understand why the Old Testament does more severely punish Christians. Yeah. question um so i think a lot of it is kind of blown out of proportion because of the scope of time so the old testament was written over a few thousand years the new testament 40 or 50 or 60 right so the new testament covered the life of jesus and then the life of the apostles after jesus that's a four, that's a 40 year period and notice in that 40 year period ananias and sapphira died in acts 5 because they blasphemed against the holy spirit just like that right who talked about hell most in the new testament jesus right? Uh, Revelation, right? Talked about the wrath of God coming in judgment. Second Thessalonians 1 talked about the saints of God um, hoping for judgment for, for their enemies, right? So you, you put it all together in the 40-year period, Ananias and Sapphira killed just like that, and um, 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 you know, uh, the judgment that, that, that God brought upon the, the ship that Paul was in, for example, was routed by God so that Paul would be redirected. All those sort of things happen in a 40-year period. Um, and and th- those are significant, right? That's, that's in a 40-year period. But in the Old Testament, there's f- thousands of years of, of, of coverage, right? You have Adam and Eve all the way to uh, uh, Second Chronicles. That, that's a long period of time. And in fact, most of the time in the Old Testament, um, people were exhorted to be reminded of events of the past that they never even lived through. So, so they're exhorted, for example, remember how your forefathers long, long, long ago were redeemed from Egypt. You know what they would have been saying back then? The unbelieving Jews, maybe? How do we even know this ha- even happened, Dad? Right? You're asked, you know, if you have kids or something, you meet people, you're like, how do you know that Jesus really resurrected? Because you're like living thousands of years after the fact. And in fact, you know, um, you read the prophets, uh, at the beginning of the book of prophets, it says oftentimes, um, Many years have passed and there was silence from God. Or there was no word from the Lord. In other words, there was a lot of, like, decades have passed and nothing happened. It was just normal life. Uh, they were living under these conditions, uh, normal life. Famine happened, whatever, you know. But there was no word from God. Nothing happened. So it's blown out of proportion simply because of focuses on time. And they were, they were, they were more zooming in on particular stories of wrath. Not only that, I also, also want to add that if you read and pay attention... Um, you're oftentimes also wondering when you read the Old Testament, how come God doesn't destroy the people all the time, <laughs> right? You're like, 
these things happen to um, to these people who touch the ark, but but uh, or and these things happen to Solomon or these things happen to David. How come David didn't die immediately, right? Still Bathsheba. My goodness, like, dude, he should have died right there. And people thought that God was severe when when David did the census and all these men died. Like David and his army should have died multiple times along the way, but they were continually upheld by God, right? So Solomon in First Kings eleven um, married a thousand women. All right, like was it like three hundred wives, seven hundred concubines? Goodness me, like thousand of, <laughs> like he should have died and a thousand others, right? That's terrible. But they were allowed to live. So the God of grace was very much active in the Old Testament, and the God of wrath is very much active in the New Testament. I would say. Does it make sense? Yeah. That was a quick answer to very very good questions. Um, so, or let me break up up into group. Can we do like five groups? And listen, you guys are all going through the same passage. So we're going to all reconvene and discuss what you all learned from this passage. Try to apply what you get from it, okay? So let's do this. I'm going to count one, two, three, four, five. So you're all going to be breaking up, working with people maybe you haven't gotten to know yet, which is good. One, two, three. Remember your numbers. I'm not going to remember them for you, okay? One, two, three, four, five. One, Two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. A, B is four. Five. One, two, three, four. <laughs> All right. Go ahead and split. Huh? Oh, uh. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Maybe it wasn't clear for us. Okay, guys, hold on, hold on. As, as you split up into groups, let me just give you all, again, the instructions. Sorry, maybe I wasn't extra clear. And Mike also requested that we read it together as a group. Joanna, sorry? All right, so here's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to apply Clowney's paradigm to here. And you're going to ask yourself the question, okay? How, what is the, the sense of this text on its own terms? Try to get the main idea. Think about literary context. Think about textual analysis. The main idea of this passage, T1, right? How is this fulfilled in Christ? All right, TN. And then how, what is the significance of this passage and how would you apply it today in light of that? If you have time, you can ask questions like this. How would I make this into a moralistic reading of this passage? Okay? That will be a side question for you to ask yourself as well. So what is the main idea? How does this relate to Christ, fulfilled in Christ? What is its significance? What is the application? What will be a moralistic reading of this passage? Okay, would that make sense? All right, before we spin to your group, let us read this passage together, as Mike suggested, which is, I think, a good idea. Oh, by the way, keep in mind clinks method as well, right? Historical things there. Are there any historical things you need to pay attention to? Redemptive echoes, right? Echoes of Christ that you need to pay attention to. Um, genre, think about those issues as well. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, however were still sacrificing at the high places, because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices 
and burn incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued his great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I, on, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant the discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked, for both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David as your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. There are some guiding questions there for you. All right, break into groups. 